Hello Food Chain! This podcast combines all of my favorite vices into a weekly deep dive about the problems our food system faces and the visionary people working on solutions. Today we speak to Passion Murray, founder of Detroit Dirt, co-founder of Culture of Carbon, and co-chair of Detroit's Climate Action Committee. Turning waste into treasure is her specialty. Her unrelenting drive helped change the carbon footprint of Detroit through revitalizing neighborhoods and finding solutions for everyday waste. She's a leader in the sustainability space. Her work landed her from Forbes to the White House, and Newsweek named her one of 13 women in business to bet on. I am extremely happy to host this podcast and bring a little passion to you all. Hi, Passion. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> Thank you. It's so good to talk to you and hear more about what you've been up to. Um, you are a uh, champion and hero in my book. So can you just tell us a little bit about the origin of Detroit Dirt and the work you've been carrying forward? Yes. So... I would have I have to dig a little bit deeper back into my in my background to uh, share how we landed with Detroit Dirt or how it was established. And so my family had a farm in uh, Mississippi, so I grew up going there during breaks during the school year. So that influenced me as well as uh, my my dad had contracts with the county and the city for snow plowing waste removal, industrial mowing, and demolition, and some other miscellaneous um, contracts with housing. So I grew up being exposed to landfills, construction, farming. And so really, at a young age, that was very influential, uh, because I looked at the environment different, even as a child. But after my journey of consulting with different corporations. I was involved in a a green construction, like a leadership and energy design project in my hometown. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, you know, after undergrad really impacted me because the, um, at that time, you know, the country I think was beginning to shift into more of a uh, construction as far as like looking at construction from the ecosystem and protecting it from an infrastructure standpoint. And so that was really pivotal, like in my mid twenties, um, that project was like back in 2004, 2005. So anyways, I began to, uh, consult a little bit and work with some different universities, but in my journey, I discovered that, Uh, When I left Grand Rapids, which is on the west side of the state and moved to Detroit, I discovered the urban farming community was um, really starting to pick up momentum. It was accelerating. But I noticed that the resources in this community were very limited. And I also uh, was paying very close attention to what the automotive community was doing. And they started pivoting and reimagining Uh, how to build more efficient cars, um, being conscious of materials that they were uh, actually producing and manufacturing cars. And I noticed, of course, that food waste 
uh, was not really a topic and climate, we were, they were just beginning to really focus in on uh, CO2 and carbon as far as emissions. And so I really wanted to kind of jump in and I met some different folks who happened to be farmers in the automotive community. One in particular was a mentor of mine and he began to allow me to talk to different folks in the automotive community here in Detroit. And so what I noticed is there was conversation about or discussions about all these other materials and materials management and waste, but food waste was not a topic. And I thought, hmm, here's an opportunity uh, for me to start bringing awareness around the problem with food loss and food waste and the food system overall. So it was just like spirituals, perfect timing. I grew up understanding these things and there was an opportunity to take advantage of the, the, the climate at that time here because I really felt that if I could bring enough awareness to, to food waste and the food loss aspect of the food system, um, that would give me or the, create an opportunity to build a platform around it. And so Detroit Dirt was established in 2010. Uh, we basically, it was myself and another urban farmer. We were looking at, we were kind of rebellious because there really weren't any ordinances in place. Uh, so policy really hadn't, you know, on a, on a local level, on the state level, they were having discussions. There were some certifications around uh, recycling and composting, but in Detroit as a whole with the community, uh, we just did it. We started composting with General Motors. We know, I knew I needed a major corporation to back me. And so I convinced General Motors, some coffee shops, some, uh, you know, uh, breweries. And at that time there was a local, um, they were they a local uh, restaurant that was making um, vodka and, and gin and things of that nature. And so we would take the spent grain, the coffee grounds, some of the food waste from General Motors. We ran a pilot for a few years. And, you know, the Detroit Zoological Society was the other key component. They had a lot of herbivore manure. And that's really when I... For, from my perspective, it became revolutionary because I thought, hmm, if we could possibly create a model that could be replicated anywhere um, with limited resources within a carbon footprint of a city, especially from an urban standpoint, then this could really shift us forward with solving solutions within the food system space. And so Detroit Dirt now has been around since 2009. And um, which led to other initiatives that I'm involved with. So, um, but, but yeah, it was an exciting time in my life, you know. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot to unpack here um, from, you know, policy to misconceptions to, you know, the general um, regeneration of a community. Um, so let's start from that. Like, <clears throat> how can, you know, this practice overall uh, improve um, the well-being of a single community, but globally um, much more? 
Yeah, that's an awesome question um, because the model was created to answer those questions. And Mm -hmm. so we knew that if we could, there was a few benefits or factors here. One, if we could divert food waste from landfills, uh, because obviously when it's buried, it contributes to greenhouse gases. And so we knew that, you know, if I, if I could focus in on that, that was huge because of the CO2 reduction, but also making sure we manage carbon properly. Mm-hmm. And then um, getting the urban farming community to pay more attention to the local economy around food you know, the value, because there's so much energy that goes in when, when food is lost, there's so much energy from the production to the transportation, everything that's involved with, you know, food. And so we knew that if we could get a byproduct of composting to various people in the community, they could use that um, to grow uh, produce. And so it was interesting because on as far as the benefit of the community, we knew that within a certain carbon footprint, we could keep the resources and materials within a certain uh, city limit as far as a mile radius within that footprint. But there were so many key factors of diverting the food, reducing you know greenhouse gases, getting those byproducts in the right hands of the people who needed them. Because again, you're trucking food waste out to a landfill or burning it in an incinerator is the last thing we should be doing. Um, And so it was awesome because it was a closed loop process that really reflected a circular economy. And I think on a global scale, this, the movement in itself and the benefits, we can shift quicker and faster with solving one of the issues within the climate Uh, change um, as far as climate change and its issues, this is a very resilient uh, practice and model where if we're doing this all over the world, I think we can see a quicker paradigm shift with impacting, especially managing carbon and looking at the food system as a whole as far as reducing our, our losses here, but also getting people to think about growing locally. Yeah. Absolutely. And what do you feel are the biggest misconceptions around composting or difficulties, <laughs> I would say? Yeah. Um, Why don't we all just do it, right? Right. I think oh, some people, it may just be awareness and education that we need to have more awareness and education in communities. Um, I think the ick factor of it, you know, people mm-hmm. think like, oh, I don't really want to be managing food waste. I'd rather just throw it away or put it in someone else's hands. And I think that, honestly, I don't believe there's a, enough of us who understand the importance of keeping it out of the garbage or the landfills. Um, because people have so many other priorities and obligations. They're not really thinking about how this impacts, but the more we educate and bring awareness around it, I've seen communities really like go from, you know, having those misconceptions to taking part as a community as a whole and really truly impacting because I think that when you think, when you throw something away, it's just kind of like it's out of sight, out of mind. But I think if we make it more of a cultural 
universal, like global uh, movement or practice, Mm -hmm. then more people will begin to understand. But as I've been a translator of this um, practice for over 10 years, and it's amazing how people have gravitated towards it once they understand like, whoa, we didn't know that it was impacting, you know, uh, or, you know, as far as greenhouse gases, like they didn't make the connection to climate uh, from a food waste. And then the health factor, you know, my, the microbial community, that's like one of the most amazing communities uh, that exists within an ecosystem. And it's like, if people don't really think about water or soil on a day to day, but when you start breaking down the complexities, Mm -hmm. it becomes, I think, um, revolutionary you know, because of the education and the understanding once you can break down all the different facets and aspects of it. Yeah. And what what do you think are the best approaches uh, to teach people about the value of waste? And I would say not just people, but, you know, starting from kids onwards, right? We all have to to learn. Yeah, I love that question. Um, I was talking to the uh, UN about this last Mm -hmm. week. And you know, I'm on a few more panels over the next month. And my goal is always to drive home the importance of this being a cultural revolution mm-hmm. and teaching K through 12 schools. So when you have a curriculum base that's integrated into the d- daily lives of children, um, as well as young adults uh, at universities, when they begin to see themselves playing a role, that's the most powerful tool and resource, if you ask me, because just from a personal perspective of sharing information with, uh, you know, elementary students and high school students, they were able to, when I would go back and like check on them just to see, you know, feedback or see, you know, what kind of progress they had made, they were creating other programs. It was almost like composting was, you know, one resource, and then they wanted to learn about the soil complexities of the soil, how it impacted climate, and they just began to see themselves as environmental attorneys, scientists, you name it, and and see. To me, that is the the most important um, lesson in all of this for me uh, was sharing resources with young people. But I think the more that we campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, Our goal was to help align with stakeholders and communities, but also to become a pilot and showcase and demonstrate. And I think the more we can um, showcase others around the world who are practicing and who have, you know, these models that are truly impacting the community, it becomes almost like a standard in a community. You know what I mean? Like now Detroit Dirt is known you know, in, in many different countries, don't get me wrong, but here in this country, it was almost like, oh, well, she can do it, we can do it. And mm-hmm. so we really pushed uh, a lot of um, campaigns. We aligned with a lot of brands. I think you you cannot, no one, you know, as, as far as my experience, you can't settle or minimize branding and marketing. Like you always mm-hmm. have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing the story right? Because you don't ever know whose hands it's going to get in. But I think education and awareness is key, whether it's through the media, through K through 12 schools with curriculums, 
or just working with major brands to help tell stories. All of it is imperative. Absolutely. And, you know, ultimately is those kind of pushes that, you know, shapes policy. And on that note, um, how can policymakers encourage individuals and organizations to be more mindful of food waste? You know, what should we, they do better and what can we do to push? Yeah, I love, I love that because when having conversations around policy, because a lot of times, Sharon, people forget that on a local level, Mm -hmm. there's power in policy. A lot of us focus on federal, you know, or national, what the country is doing. And that Mm -hmm. could take a longer uh, time period to actually get something done. And so I feel like a lot of the organizations, like I'm on a, on a green task force here. I'm one of the uh, co-chairs of the Climate Action Committee. And we talk about it all the time that from an environmental justice perspective, on a local level, you can begin to mobilize and bring organizations together. And then the leadership aligning with the key leaders who understand that and helping to change ordinances and policies on a local level is, a, to me, it's, it's a little bit, uh, more advantageous to a community, it can happen quicker. Uh, it's conducive, you know, because you have uh, a smaller amount of people, you know, a million people in a city or 500,000 people in a city changing an ordinance and creating mandates mm-hmm. where we're saying, okay, from a political standpoint, you're going to be fined if you you know, waste so much, or as a stakeholder or, or corporation in your, in your community, if you keep contributing to these greenhouse gases, here's a, a better way. You know, those are antiquated practices. Follow these mandates um, and guidelines, and, and it will benefit us all. So I think, you know, from a politician standpoint or from a policy and ordinance, we have to have more mandates. We have to hold, you know, the citizens accountable as well as the stakeholders, because a municipality probably makes up one to 2% of the uh, impact of climate change, where the community as a whole is the other 98%. So we have to look at balancing that factor and making sure that we have these standards and practices within an ordinance that's gonna hold the stakeholders, the major corporations accountable for their their, um, activities and actions. Yeah, no, that's uh, truly important. Um, I'm always, you know, when you look at these huge challenges, right? Um, it's, uh, you can't, nobody can think that, you know, not one person, one organization, one company can, you know, solve these big, you know, um, challenges that we face. But I think, pulling resources and doing it together, um, you know, it's imperative. And to mobilize, you know, a city, a town towards something, it's very inspiring. Yes, I agree. And needed, and needed. Um, <laughs> speaking of, like, now you know the, the there's two big words, right? Um, and we've been you know, we've known each other for quite some time. And I think we both have seen a shift, you know, the past uh, 
you know, five years, for, for example. So now two big words are carbon, carbon markets and regenerative, right? And in both, soil is key. Um, in terms of, you know, carbon and carbon markets, um, do, do you ever hear something that, you know, perplexes you or people fail to mention you know like you know this you know this is your subject uh what do people don't get yeah i love that uh question and you're asking great questions because these are all pain points uh that you know solutions is the key to this conversation and Mm -hmm. so what bothers me is the fact that you have multi-billion dollar corporations who keep supporting fossil fuels, right? And, you're, mm-hmm. and, we're, and we're saying, okay, I get it. We can't overnight change the fact that we still have cars that need fuel. I get it. And, and the multitude of other things that depend on fossil fuels. But if you can't, if you won't take the time to really take a fraction of the investment in the fossil fuels, when you know that there are examples of technologies and systems that are solving issues around climate, I think that that to me is, that is, that bothers me more than anything because mm-hmm. the investments are there. The solutions yep. are out there. You yep. can go into Europe and Canada and Brazil, all these places, South America, North, and there are examples of, systems that can replace landfills. There are energy efficient vehicles, electrification. We're seeing the evolution, the revolution Mm -hmm. of electrification. It's out there. So it's like, if you want to control one industry, start investing in another that's actually solving uh, a problem. And, and, And so when I hear people saying still in this day and time, climate change doesn't exist or- <laughs> we we should start we should continue to invest in fossil fuels it's like well you just don't want to support what's right i mean at the end of the day <laughs> that's all that really comes down to is you're not supporting you know uh sustaining the ecosystem for generations to come you're you're the enemy at <laughs> that was that, that was the app yeah but I was just saying, you know, at the end of the day, they don't really want to support. It's like if you have children, how are your kids going to enjoy your children are going to enjoy all the hard work and everything that you've invested in if there's not a world to live yeah. in or that we can sustain? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that is, I think, the scariest thing, because as you said, we have solutions for every single problem, basically between technology and models and practices, you know, to regenerate our, you know, our planet, we, we have them. And then why is it, you know, taking so long for policymakers to catch up and, you know, rewrite policies that make sense or, you know, companies to really put, you know, these innovation into practice and obviously, you know, we all know the answer to that, right? right. <laughs> and, exactly. And it's like the world does not end in 10 years. I mean, you know, we have, you know, future generations that would like to have a planet, you know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is very frustrating. <laughs> right, right. And we're seeing 
you know, you have some of the most prominent and influential institutions in the world who now they went from having one program or two program to now, now in current times, their environmental law programs, uh, sustainability programs, sustainability and economics. You're mm-hmm. seeing the fact that uh, academia is now saying we need to prepare these younger generations uh, to fight this issue. And it's been a beautiful journey watching universities evolve that I used yeah. to go and speak to 10, 12 years ago. Now they have programs, interdisciplinary programs focused on climate resiliency, which is just, it's awesome. Like you said, yeah. we're seeing the change happen, but the major stakeholders and communities, it's like, especially here in the United States, you get a little frustrated because they know the that the solutions and technologies exist. They just are taking their time with investing. And the economics is there too. It's not yes. like we're saying we're all tree huggers and you know, we just want to plant trees and you know, this is the economics, like you said, the carbon markets. We can develop so many different markets based on climate resilient practices, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, the way we should be going. But I just think there's a huge fight. There are those of us who are in it and dedicating our lives to it. And there are those who are opposing it, but they can't deny that the solutions don't exist. No, no. And unfortunately, I think the past five years in the United States have seen, you know, a big halt you know around policy because obviously you know policy come from politics and if you have people that for money uh will not even acknowledge climate change um it is a big problem but you have uh not just you know um co-founded detroit dirt but speaking of carbon you've also started culture of carbon (laughs) (laughs) and can you tell us exactly what it is and how you got there which you know the how part (laughs) is pretty (laughs) obvious but you know what is this new venture yes this new venture it's uh a couple years old and um it the birth of culture of carbon like you said obviously we wanted to tackle the issue around uh, managing carbon properly. Uh, But I started um, about three or four years ago, Sharon, I started getting calls where corporations and certain brands were asking me to help them with their corporate and social responsibility with some of their guidelines. And there were a lot of consulting opportunities. Um, So number one, it was oh, here's an opportunity for me to lend a helping hand and support those who, you know, would like to incorporate this in their businesses Mm -hmm. and their practices. But the other benefit and the exciting part about it um, was the environmental justice and equity piece. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of uh, folks were saying, you know, what can we do differently, Passion? Um, If it's not composting, you know, how do we create a campaign? How do we, you know, um, create these education models? How do we get our our employees to understand this? And so 
the min, min the municipalities as far as like the municipal work mm-hmm. and the corporations as well as schools it was amazing um how many uh people started reaching out and you know it wasn't necessarily that they just wanted to focus on composting they wanted to create models um and they asked us to assist them and so i'm having a lot of fun with that because from an equity standpoint, we know that the BIPOC, you know, the, you know, black and brown communities, as well as indigenous yeah. communities have not been invited uh, to, you know, to the table, um, invited to help at least explain and express their perspective. And so part of my hat, environmental justice hat is looking at this from an equity lens and saying, okay, I need to now share my story and the experiences that I've had because it's not all been, you know, uh, great. It hasn't, you know, the glorious parts of it is what the media, you know, or what people know. But when I was in the trenches and really fighting the opposition, um, equity was a it was a big issue. It was a huge yeah. issue, and so culture of carbon. We're helping. Uh, we're helping you know, everyday people to major corporations align with sustainability development goals and, and resilient planning. That's how it came about. And I'm really excited about it. Not that I have abandoned Detroit dirt, but it's seeing the awakening of mm-hmm. uh, people and corporations and how they can see the benefit, you know, when you go in and, and show them you know, if we if we take a small fraction of your revenue from your company or if you start sharing resources with your employees or, you know, if you align with municipalities in your community and build a bridge around climate resiliency, the impact that it has. And so that's a quicker it's a quicker and in an exponential way to get influence and a huge paradigm shift when you can get these resources in people's hands. And so culture of carbon has just been revolutionary in that sense. I was already doing it, but we had to kind of, we had to keep the companies separated, um, you know, for tax purposes, but also because the demand um, and building a team around this. So, you know, it's, it's been, it's been uh, interesting because these vulnerable communities around the world you know, they feel voiceless at times and, and in dis- their disparities um, are there. And so we have to take those of us who have resources or relationships, we have to lend uh, support to the vulnerable uh, yeah. communities because they should be the top priority because uh, they're impacted the hardest. They're hit hard, you know. Yes. Very wise words. Um, you are, you know, the United Nations, um, the FAO, uh, Food Heroes for North American U.S. nominated, um, you as, you know, uh, one of the food heroes. So if you were to nominate your own food hero, who would that be? Oh, Wow. Man, they're so, (laughs) (laughs) there's, they're not no name people out here. I, I would have to choose, 
a lot of urban farmers Mm -hmm. um, throughout the country. I don't have one in particular, just one food hero, because I meet so many chefs who are who are changing their communities through food. And Mm -hmm. I and I meet so many um, urban farmers who are taking a small amount of resources to to grow food for communities, which is just amazing. And I just want to acknowledge all those, those urban farmers, the revolutionaries who are, who are taking a chance on, you know, believing and, and, and dismantling these food systems that really are terrible for, we shouldn't be consuming a, a huge percentage of the food that we consume. And so, um, I'm just grateful for a lot of the urban farmers and those who have really put their lives on the line uh, to fight for policy change who are, who have been at it before I was born or at a, you know, who have been working at these things since I was young, these soil scientists and um, nutritionists, you know, they, they've been at it forever, you know, trying to get the, the farm bill, and our food system to shift in another direction, yeah. you know? So um, I didn't know I was going to be a food hero. And, and that, that I, I will say this, like with someone like uh, Jose Andreas, who, mm-hmm. you know, I definitely think that people, human beings like him, like beautiful humans like Jose, when you have distributed food and you're working with other uh, small businesses, I thought that that was like revolutionary because people all over the country and all over the world were aligning with his program to get food in, in, in the homes of people from elders to impoverished communities. And that, that to me was just amazing. Um, I think when, when we really think about, the power of taking resources and aligning with others. It's, it's so um, impactful, you know, impactful, but, but, you know, you're a food hero. So, (laughs) you know, I I wouldn't have had the opportunity to uh, visit Italy and, 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 and hang out in Milan and meet others you know, with some of the initiatives and things that you've been involved with. So there's so many of us. I just happen to be one of thousands. <laughs> you know, I just think it, it came at the right time because they they saw Kiss the Ground and they've seen other things that I've been involved in. And it, it was, you know, but I think it probably could have been a thousand of us food heroes, to be honest with you. I think, you know, there are so many, you know, wonderful um, humans just like you, right, Um, that are fighting to make, you know, this uh, a better place for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, it's, uh, you know, we just keep pushing and pushing and hopefully, you know, I see already so much change, but it seems like it's never enough. And on that note, what can we expect? Uh, what's next for you? <laughs> um, so I have a 
book that is in the final edit phase um, for now. <laughs> and, and we're basically sharing, I'm sharing my story, uh, my journey, and, and, and I touch on key factors and benefits within the food system as far as waste reduction and um, connecting my life to, the, you know, uh, the work that I've been doing um, and wanting to share that with others because I get so many inquiries, mm-hmm. um, people wanting from folks in Ireland to South America to East Africa saying, you know, or inquiring about how they can get models off the ground. So um, that's coming down the pipeline, the book. And then um, I'm working with, I have some major brands that I'm going to be working with next year on helping vulnerable communities. Um, and so, which leads to the other, the other uh, point that I was going to make is we, we launched a climate equity advisory council and leadership uh, platform. And so um, I'm so excited about that because I know too, that a lot of people of color you know, uh, in the black and brown communities, they've been asking, you know, or inquiring about how do they get more, you know, aligned with programs in their own communities, but also asking me to lead them in the right direction. Um, so I'm excited about that. And in these vulnerable communities, I think I'll spend the rest of my life working with major corporations and brands to, share resources and implement programs in in vulnerable communities because priorities around impact, you know, when you look at the climate, a climate index, which we've created around priorities, the, the, those CVAs, those vulnerable, you know, communities, they really have to start. We have to take the responsibility and start sharing those of us who are experts on what they can do around flooding fires um, as far as adaptation. And so when you do a climate vulnerability assessment and you create these priorities, a lot of these vulnerable communities around the world, I think will begin to to benefit when we start paying attention to them because they're hit hard the most and they have, you know, they're impoverished, they're, they're in desperate, you know, uh, as far as the disparities, they're in, in desperation as well, because it's what do they do? Do they pack up and move? Um, what shelters do they go to? I mean, it's really about building um, adaptation plans around vulnerable communities. So I'm, I think I finally found, you know, an area that I, I know for a fact for the rest of my life, you know, I'm always going to work with the soil, healthy soil, warriors and compost warriors of the world but um the vulnerable communities have a certain place in my heart now and of course i want to connect them to resources of the world um and so with the book and the climate equity advisory and then um i have a tool and i'll talk to you more about that uh when when we get together but i have a a um an interactive tool that I want as a platform to help others. Uh, oh, that's understand. amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's I'm ex- I'm excited, and you know I want to continue to work with the United Nations on 
bringing awareness. And so the head of the FAO, she, she, the director, she's like, passion, we should be mapping out, you know, soils around the world and we should do this and we should. So it's like, I'm going to go wherever people invite me. (laughs) There's there's only (laughs) one me. (laughs) There's only one passion, but I'm like, I'll, you know, if I got to go to Europe for a month and stay there, go to Brazil, I don't care where I have to go um, and who I can work with as long as it's the meeting of the minds, like-minded people who want to bring about change. I'm, I'm ready, you know, to whatever I need to do. I'm, I'm giving my life to this movement. So, yeah. And you are an inspiration. And I'm definitely curious about the tool, so I will, um, and I have something actually I need to share with you. Good. But, but. (laughs) (laughs) Privately. Privately. (laughs) Now you got me like, okay, you better call me right back or you better text me and let me know. (laughs) So my darling friend, my dear friend, it's been a pleasure to to have you um, on and I am sure you have inspired um, our listener uh, listeners and for those that did not know you, um, I'm glad that they do and they need to check out Detroit Dirt and Culture of Carbon um, and read about you. Um, and is there anything you'd like to say or, you know, leave a contact or whatever, any last words? Yes. I want to thank you because I'm, I'm grateful for our friendship, our relationship. Um, and you have definitely given your life to this movement as well. So I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge you and thanking you. Um, the, as far as like any like inspiration to people, I just want, everyone to understand that we take so much from mother nature in this ecosystem. We have to start investing uh, back into mother nature in whatever way that you can, whether it's minimizing the plastic use, uh, composting, uh, auditing, you know, your, your day to day, uh, eating more of a nutritious based, you know, diet, but just in supporting those in your community you know, if it's just the $50 a year or $100 a year to donate to the organizations and the people who are fighting, um, I just encourage that for us to, to invest in any way that we can, whether we lend our support of volunteering or we can afford to donate to organizations. And uh, the other thing is I can, I mean, you can follow me at passion, P-A-S-H-O-N-M-U-R-R. A-Y at Passion Murray on Instagram, Passion Murray on Facebook. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Detroit Dirt as well, uh, at Detroit Dirt. And then Culture of Carbon, we're creating the website now for cultureofcarbon.com. Uh, so um, I'm here. Just reach out. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll definitely keep in touch. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Want to deep dive into food innovation? Subscribe to the Food Tech Junkie series. 
Tune in and listen to the industry's champion whose mission is to reinvent our future by collaborating and disrupting the status quo as a way to rebalance our planet and our daily lives. For more great content, visit our website at www.edibleplanetventures.com and follow us on social media on the Edible Planet Ventures channels.